Well, I'm looking for uh, someone to come in this Sunday. Um, I got a lot of pressure from my daughter, Abigail, to have Andy Stearns come in because she really enjoys uh, Andy teaching the classes she's had with him. Uh, she also enjoys harassing him, apparently, I guess, too. Um, so what Abigail said that, oh, you really need to have him in, I take it with a grain of salt because it is Abigail. But then Jonathan said so, too, and so I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll take this seriously. <laughs> but um, uh, Andy Cerns is uh, obviously a professor at Faith Baptist Bible College. Uh, he, uh, him and I actually overlapped a little time when we were up there. Uh, but I was finishing up my uh, seminary degree, and he was just finishing up college and beginning his uh, uh, seminary time there. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing you share the Word of God with us. So I'll just have you come up, and you can introduce yourself and your family and uh, share what you could will. Thank you. Well, good morning. Boy, if you hadn't said something about Abigail, I was going to, so I'm glad you covered that base for me. (laughs) I believe, well, we won't talk about our email interaction this week, but it was pretty good. So, um, yes, so I teach at the Bible College. I'm married to Robin, who's right there, and I have two kids, Evan and Abby, also Abigail, and uh, so we're excited to be here. I enjoy teaching at the college. I have a lot of great students, uh, and I would count Abigail among them, and also John, uh, it's good to see you, John. I see also there's some other college students here. Today, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. The title looks like a historical lecture, doesn't it? Hey, we're going to have a lecture time. Uh, but that's not what we're going to do. If you've never gone through the lives of some of the kings, in, of Judah specifically, it's a really great study for your personal devotion time. So if you just go to where Solomon ends and then start reading and pay attention to everything that goes on in Judah, it's a really intriguing uh, contrast between some kings that follow the Lord and obey God and then some kings who don't follow the Lord and don't obey God. And so you kind of go back and forth. There's a few more that are bad than good. Now you can read about the northern kings in Israel. They're all bad. So today I want to look at the life and the legacy of King Manasseh. He's, I want to say one of my favorites, but he's one of the worst, so I don't want to say that. But his his story is one of the most intriguing. So here's a question I want you to be considering right now. How much sin can you sin and have sinned too much for God to forgive you? How much sin can you sin And that's the line that's too much for God to forgive you. I think we all know the right answer. God forgives no matter what the sin is. No matter how much you sinned, if you turn to him, confess your sins, and humble yourself, he will forgive you. But this story is going to be an illustration that might take us to the almost extreme point of what we wonder, really, could a guy like that be forgiven? And then when we end, I want to make some comments about our own lives and our own forgiveness. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to start in 2 Kings 21. We're also going to be jumping to 2 Chronicles in a bit, but we'll we'll do that next. Okay, let's go ahead and... Oh, hold on, sorry. i got to start my stopwatch or I'll never stop talking. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for being so kind to us. Thank you for being a gracious and a forgiving God. Thank you, Lord, that even though you knew we would sin, you knew that we would... Uh, rebel against you. Sometimes that rebellion looks like open hostility, and sometimes it just looks like not caring about you, God. 
But thank you that you, knowing all those things in our lives, still sent Jesus to be the sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and we could have a relationship with you. I pray that today, as we study the life of this king, it would help us to have a better understanding and a better vision of how the world is according to your eyes. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so we'll start in chapter 21 of 2 Kings. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephizbah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal, and he made an Asherah, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And... He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens. And he dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the Asherah that he had made... He set in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. We'll stop there. We're going to start working through the text. But Manasseh doesn't really have a really glowing review right here. If, you were, if you're going to say, what's my legacy? What, what do I want written on my tombstone? What do I want people to remember about me? This is not what I want written about me in Scripture forever and for all time. So Manasseh's life is not a great one. So we're going to go ahead and start off. And, oh, sorry, let me... That, that's an actual photo of him? No. Um, just a little bit of biography and background. So the very first verse says, Manasseh uh, was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. So just want a little bit of history here. Who's Manasseh's, is it on screen? Who's Manasseh's father? Anyone know? You can probably just look in your Bible and see. And this is a little bit like a class. Someone can just say it. Hezekiah, thank you. Now, Hezekiah, when you think of Hezekiah, do you think good king or do you think bad king? I heard a good. I heard a one good. Okay. So this is helpful for you to know. He was a really, really, really good king. And if you read about his story, which again would be great for your devotional time, he had some run-ins with Assyria, and at the last minute when the Assyrian army was camped outside of Israel, the Lord delivered Hezekiah by sending the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian warriors outside the gates of Jerusalem. It was a wonderful display of God's covenant loyalty to his people to protect them. Now, 
Hezekiah's end, he did have that problem in those later years where he had sinned, but God gave him more time to live. But that was Manasseh's father. I would say overall, Hezekiah was very good. At the end, he did have a little bit of a problem. He was a little bit arrogant. But he followed the Lord. He tore down the places of Canaanite worship, the high places. He routed the idolaters in the land. He threw down the idols and the carved statues. Hezekiah cleaned house. He reformed the kingdom. He did a really great thing for Israel. When Manasseh turned 12, he became king. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have a 12-year-old ever, I don't want him to be the king of America. Okay, Because a 12-year-old will want us to play games and eat donuts, and that's how they will rule, and who knows what else will happen. So when it says he began ruling at 12, he was co-ruling with his dad, Hezekiah. So he began to rule, and he's going to co-rule for 10 years, and then dad dies. And so at 22, he begins his sole rule of the kingdom. Now, his father had reformed greatly in Israel. But what does Manasseh immediately begin to do? Well, he commits many sins. So let's go ahead and start in verse 3, or verse 2. He says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now, those nations would have been the Canaanites. If you remember back to the Exodus, Moses leaves, the children of Israel doubt, they're wandering in the desert for 40 years, and then God says, okay, it's time for you to go and take your promised land, the land that I'm giving you. And the reason God gave the land over to them, part of the reason, he promised it to Abraham, but part of it was those people who lived there were very wicked. They committed great sins, horrible adultery or idolatries, and God had warned that their sins would come to fruition and he would judge them. So when God gave the kingdom over to the Israelites, it was a judgment of the kingdoms before that, the Canaanites who had done wicked things. Look at what, Hez- or look at what Manasseh does in verse 3. Look at his many sins. First of all, he rebuilt what his father had destroyed. So this is verse 3. He, he rebuilt the high places that his father had destroyed, and he erected altars to Baal, and he made an Asherah, as Ahab and Israel had done. And he worshipped and the hosts of heaven, and he served them. So, uh, first of all, he rebuilt the high places. Uh, a high place was where you would go and worship if you were a pagan or an idolater in that time. You'd find a high place. Presumably it was closer to the false gods that you worshipped. You'd maybe make your sacrifices there. You'd make your... There's all kinds of wicked things that we really shouldn't talk about in this kind of a mixed group, but they were very wicked. And they would go to the high place and they would sacrifice and they would celebrate all of their idolatries. It was very wicked. And so part of what Hezekiah had done is he tore those down. Well, as soon as Hezekiah died, Manasseh must have not been convinced that the God of Israel was the true God because he immediately, or very quickly at least, builds the high places again and begins to sacrifice to all those Canaanite gods. Now consider for just a moment. God had given that land over to his people because the Canaanites were wicked. And he wanted them to follow his word. And now his very people are going back and doing the same things that the Canaanites did. 
It's completely backwards to what should have happened. So he made high places. He made altars to Baal. Baal was this continual idol that the people were constantly being tempted to worship. All kinds of other, lots of people in the Canaan area would worship Baal. He was sort of a god of war and a god of harvest, and he had some other god things going on. And so they would sacrifice to him. They made an Asherah. I can't even talk about what an Asherah is. It's too inappropriate. It was a very inappropriate cult. And then it says that he worshipped the hosts of heaven. When it says hosts, it means like, they're really referring to the stars. Now the Assyrians loved the stars, especially later the Babylonians really got into it. And so he's essentially doing what all of the pagan nations around him are doing. Exactly what God told him not to do. All right, we'll pause here for just a moment. Think about, don't do this out loud, think about the last time you sinned. Whatever it was. Probably in this group, the sins are the kind of sins, and it's not that we would say any sin is unimportant to God, okay? But if you have like murdering a whole town of people over here, and then calling your brother in Christ a name because you're mad at him. Do you see how like there's a difference? There's some sort of a difference where we are concerned about this sin, but there's a different level of concern over here. I'm not saying any sin doesn't matter in God's eyes and some are better and worse. I'm simply pointing out this is really serious sin he's committing. It's one thing to hate your brother in your heart and call him a bad name and think, oh, I shouldn't do anything. I I should repent. It's another thing to go out and to murder, like to take that thought and put an action to it and end that life with finality. It's different. It's greater. It's more severe. To get to that place... There's a lot more going on in your heart. Neither are good. I'm not saying this is okay. I'm saying that's very severe. Now notice the things that he's doing. These are really, really severe issues. These are great sins. These are evidences of a completely unrepentant heart. He's not doing so good as a king. Now it goes on and it doesn't get better. Look at what happens. So in verse 3, he institutes star worship. That, again, is a very pagan thing. Then if you go to verse 6, it shows that he basically engages in more of the pagan practices of the people of Canaan. The very people God kicked out because of their sins so he could give the Israelites that play, the the land. So in verse 6 it says, He burned his son as an offering. He used fortune-telling and omens. He dealt with mediums. That would be like, uh, spiritists who thinks they can talk to the spirit world, and with necromancers, people who thinks they can call up dead people. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. There was another god of the Canaanites, Chemosh, or Molech, depending on who you were, and it was a bronze statue with bronze arms. You'd light a fire under it, you'd heat it up, and there's a giant mouth, and you would sacrifice children, rolling them into the fire. It was a horridly wicked practice. My point in pointing this out is not to make our stomachs turn, but to simply say, could Manasseh have gone farther down the path of sin in your mind? I'm sure he could. But man, he was pretty wicked. He was pretty sinful. And the worst part, I think, and this is it right here, in verse 8 we see it gets even worse. Oh, let's go back to 7 here. And he carved the image of Asherah that he had made, and he set it in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house in Jerusalem I have chosen of all the tribes to put my name. Verse 8. 
I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore uh, out of the land that I gave their fathers if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the law that my servant Moses had given them. What happens? Verse 9, here's the summary. Manasseh did not listen. He led the people to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before them. So the, the problem here is that, I want you to see this, it's not only that Manasseh sinned, right? That's a bad thing. But the text is really concerned that Manasseh led all the people to sin even more. Manasseh led all the people to sin. So as we stop here, we want to pause really quick, and we want to note there's one more foundational sin. Now, we're going to skip to, we're going to go to verse 10, and, uh, oh no, sorry, verse 9, the sin here, uh, no, no, verse 10, sorry. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these abominations and done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and he has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, that is to say the judgments that both of those receive. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of the enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh said very much innocent blood. Now, my assumption is probably if you opposed Manasseh, he would have had you killed, and then very likely that's a reference to the child sacrifice cults that were going on. There's probably a lot of, like if you think of our modern-day abortion industry, it was probably something similar going on with all of the child sacrifice in Israel, a complete abomination to the Lord. He, he, he shed very much innocent blood in verse 16 till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice that in verse 10, it had said, the Lord spoke by his prophets. Now I want you to turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 33. Second Chronicles Chapter 33, and we're going to go to verse 10. So the Second Kings was written first, and then later, around the time of the exile, for the exiles, the books of First and Second Chronicles are written. And in it, the priests writing it are adding a little bit more clarification to the story because the, the, the soon-to-be exiles who are going to, or the, the soon-to-be uh, captives who are going back to the land will need to know these things. So if you start in chapter 33, verse 1, it starts the exact same way as kings. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And essentially everything we just read gets done in nine verses very quickly. Now go to verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. They paid no attention. 
And so what I would say is that the one foundational sin or one of the foundational sins that Manasseh commits is when God speaks, they don't listen. When God speaks, they don't listen. Now in that day, God would have spoken through prophets and holy men who would have come and would have preached probably a sermon of repentance and to returning to the law. And my guess is that not only did he not listen to them, but probably some of them got killed because he didn't like their message and he probably just had them killed. So let's have a little bit of application. Let's just, let's just consider some implications here. Number one, consider the seriousness of rejecting the Lord. Consider how serious it is for you to reject the Lord. Now, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, okay? So God did not send me today like he would have sent prophets to Judah. But anytime a pastor or a man of God or a person who's discipling you opens God's word and uses God's word to show you where you've walked away from it, it's very serious for that you listen and submit. I think in Manasseh we see a habit or a pattern of Manasseh hearing that he should stop and plug in his ears and continuing down his path. Sometimes rebellion looks like yelling no and, and resisting, and sometimes rebellion just looks like ignoring what you know you ought to listen to. You'll be able to tell what that is in your own heart. And so I just want to point out that it's serious. Uh, you know, Manasseh was told, hey, you need to not do this. You need to stop. He didn't. But what was even more serious in the passage is not only did he sin, but in his own living in sin, he caused or discipled those around him. He led them. He was their king to also sin. So when God confronts you in your life, believer, on a sin, please humble yourself. Listen to God. Listen to God's word. Not only for yourself, but yes, for yourself, but also because how we live our lives in front of all of the other believers, how we live has an effect on them. How you choose to either obey God or disobey God helps to disciple those around you in either one of those directions. I think we see an example of that here with King Manasseh. Secondly, listen to those that God has placed in your life when they point out sin. Listen. Not listening to a godly person who confronts or rebukes you is a mark of spiritual pride, I believe, and the root of Manasseh's sin in his own life. He was proud. He thought he knew it all. He thought he could do what he wanted. He thought it was okay to ignore God. That led down the wrong path. Okay, so we first see here that Manasseh rejects the Lord, but this is where the whole story turns in a really fascinating way. Now we're going to see that Manasseh remembers the Lord. So this is what's not recorded in First and Second Kings. So start with me in verse 10 in Second Chronicles 33, and we're going to read a few verses here. So the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now, we'll talk just a little bit here. We're going to have a little bit more of a history lesson. 
Uh, historical records are so fun to look at. Well, I don't actually look at them. I just read books where people did look at them and found things out, because that'd be too much. So in, in the records of Assyria, there is actually record of the Assyrians going down to Israel and doing a siege and then bringing back a certain king by the name of Manasseh. So if that historical record is accurate, what happens is the Assyrians decided they'd had enough of the Israelites. And down to Judah they go with an army. They show up in Jerusalem and they capture the royalty, the king Manasseh being one of them. And they take Manasseh away to prison. Now from the records, and this is all history, so it's hard to say. It's not like it's in scripture. It's very likely that Manasseh spent an entire year in a dark dreary Assyrian prison cell. So you've been a king in Judah, in Jerusalem. You had your way. You did anything you wanted. You had the nicest of nice things. And now you've been taken away in captivity and put in a prison. This was in the year, very likely, 648, which would have been 39 years after he began his single rulership of Israel. So remember, You had King Hezekiah and Manasseh co-ruled. It'd be like me and my son ruling together for 10 years, and then he becomes king. From the moment he became king, just Manasseh, that moment on, it was 39 years, and then he got put in an Assyrian prison. Now, I want you to pause and think about something for a moment. Right away, he begins idolatry. Right away, he begins rejecting Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord. For four decades, I'm 41. That would be like my entire life in America, Manasseh being the king, and we all live wickedly. Anyone who tries to tell Manasseh you need to repent probably gets killed, and there's all kinds of wicked practices all through the country for my entire lifetime. So, When it says that this provoked the Lord to anger, do you see? I'm not saying that only one year would have been okay. I'm not saying that only one week would have been okay. I'm saying think of how horrible 40 almost years of idolatry and wickedness were in the land with God's own people. And so Manasseh got taken away. Now, the Assyrians were, um, I don't know how to describe them. Horrible people. Let's start with that. So it says that they bound him with chains and they took him away with hooks. Uh, Sorry, don't be too squeamish here, but the Assyrians were wicked and horrible people and they ruled by power. They liked to make an example of how much power they had so that everyone would be afraid to cross them. So often when they sacked a town, they would pile up heads in a big pile and then you would know never to cross them. Uh, When they took King Manasseh away, one of their common practices was to use hooks. Now, not little fish hooks. Uh, They would use these big old hooks, and it's very possible they'd put it either in his cheek and then drag him, or they would, you know the soft part of your chin underneath the bone? They would shove it straight through under the tongue, and they would just drag the guy and make him walk all the way back. It was sort of a, sorry, I'm not trying to make a squeamish. I just want you to see, like, this was no party, okay? It was not like when... A president today gets arrested and they kind of put him in a, 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 an armored limousine and take him to an armored prison cell and they kind of still treat He was really mistreated. Drag him all the way back to Assyria and then they throw him in a prison cell. Probably wasn't very comfortable. Probably didn't have a lot of food. Maybe got mistreated at times. And so his imprisonment was 
probably very, very difficult. And this is probably why the historians think it happened. There was a rebellion at this time against the Assyrians. Egypt rebelled. There's a record of Egypt rebelling and trying to throw off their yoke because Assyrians had taken over pretty much all of Mesopotamia at this point. And it's possible that Manasseh thought, I'm going to rebel too. And so he threw his lot in with this rebellion. And if you're going to rebel against Assyria, you had better rebel. Because if you don't all the way rebel, they're going to come and get you. So it's very likely they tried to rebel, didn't work, and the Assyrians came and squashed them. Now, historically, that's what happens. But what does the text say was the reason this happened? This is the judgment of the Lord. And I do think God is provoked to anger. He says that. But he already told his covenant people, this is what I'll do. If you go back to Deuteronomy, you can do this on your own time. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Israel. I'll be your God. You be my people. If you're faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. If someone attacks you, I will attack them. If anything happens to you, I will make enemies of those who are your enemies. I will be your God. But if you stray, if you walk away, I will discipline you. And I think that's the word that's used to bring you back. So this is a punishment, but it's also a humbling event. It's meant to discipline his people. It's meant both to punish, but to cause them to want to turn and come back to God. Now look at what happens. Look at the plea. In verse 12, it says, And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty. And he heard his plea, and he brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. There's a couple of really important things to notice. First of all, for 40 years, who had he worshipped? Baal, Asherah, Molech, the stars. How come he calls on God now? Why would he call on God? He's been a worshiper of these foreign idols. For 40 years, for my entire lifetime, he's been a pagan. Why does he call on the Lord? Well, we can guess. There's probably many possible options. But this is the one that I think is, maybe jumps out at me the most. Maybe he thought, oh, those gods don't exist. Maybe he thought, oh, those gods aren't powerful enough to save. Yeah, yeah. But how could he call on God if he didn't already know about God? Who would have taught him about the Lord? It would have been his dad. It would have been Hezekiah. It would have been when he was young, 12 years old. 12 to 22, actually maybe 0 to 22, he knows about Yahweh. He knows about Jehovah. He rejects it. But when life gets really hard, who did he turn to? He turned back to the Lord. So you can look at the 40 years of paganism and say, ah oh man, he's a lost cause. All that upbringing in Judaism was a waste. 
the Lord knows what he's doing, who does he turn back to? He turns back to the Lord. And then what is the other thing we should know? So, so what he learned when he was young, he didn't forget it. And when it really came down to it, he actually turned to God for help, not to all those idols. The second thing we want to notice is what did he do to himself? It says he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. If you look at the New Testament, James says God lifts up those who humble themselves. That's what God loves to do. His people, if they would humble themselves, God will take care of them. That was the key, I think. It was him being humble. And I also think that's the key in understanding his 40 years of being a pagan. He was arrogant. So then he gets restored. He gets restored. God was gracious, and so on record, after he's in prison for about a year, he gets released, and he gets sent back to Judah, into Jerusalem, and he gets to be put back as a king. And so everything gets restored. This is crazy that this happens, but this is what the Lord does for him. So let's have a couple of thoughts for our own life here really quick. First of all, notice what God does with distress and crisis. What does God do with distress and crisis? God uses that to humble us. Now, I've never been put in a Syrian prison. I've never had a hook through my chin. I've never had any of that happen to me. But I've gone through some some hard times. And then just day-to-day life is filled with trials. The key to the Christian life, I think, or one of them, is learning to respond in a humble manner to trials. When you go through a trial, when you are seeing a problem, when something is difficult, what do you do? In pride, do you turn to your own resources? Or in humility, do you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. You're sovereign. I'll follow you. To humble yourself during a crisis is important. If you do that, then it has a great value to the Lord. Secondly, ask the question that we asked at the beginning. Who can be forgiven? Notice that Manasseh, the text, literally says he caused Israel to do more sin than any of the kings before him, and he caused Israel to do more sins than the Canaanites. This is essentially, I don't know, is this on the level of a Hitler or a Saddam Hussein? I mean, I'm thinking it's got to be up there. And yet that person is still not beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness. From a human perspective, I probably would write someone like that off. I could share the gospel, and they're probably not going to listen. They're probably not going to be interested. Oh, why would they care about that? But in God's perspective, no one is out out of... the scope of the forgiveness of his son. And then thirdly, I just want to point out, uh, he learned these truths likely while he was a very young boy. Parents, teach your kids the truth. Teach them about the Lord. You don't know what God will do do with that even if they end up rejecting I assume if Hezekiah had been around, he would have looked at his son and thought, man, my son, he's strayed from the Lord. He doesn't believe. He's following false gods. But the Lord is at work in people's hearts. And never lose hope. Never. Maybe today you're even thinking of a child who's older and strayed. Perhaps you just have a friend or a coworker who's walking, not walking with the Lord and maybe in their past did. Don't give up praying. Don't give up sharing. Don't give up being a testimony. The Lord is good. We can trust him, and we don't know what he will do. All right. All right, lastly, we see that Manasseh 
after he has rejected the Lord, after he has remembered the Lord, now he returns to the Lord. Now notice what he does. So go to verse 14. After he has returned, he's now king again, uh, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David on the west of the Gihon in the valley and the entrance to the fish gate and carried it around to Offal and he raised it up to a very great height. He also put commanders in the army or of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And so in verse 14, what's he doing? He's reinforcing the, the country. He's reinforcing his city. Now that may not sound like anything special. Okay, great, that's fine. But as a king, that was one of his responsibilities. He, his responsibility was to keep the place safe. To, to guard it, to set up armies, to strengthen it. It's what David and Solomon and those did. And it's very likely that he had just been lax at that sort of a responsibility. Also, if you're trying to make nice with Assyria, you probably don't want to do that because it might put a target on your back. But now he's saying, nope, I'm going to trust the Lord. And so he's doing what he should have done as a king. In verse 15, we see that he starts removing some of those sinful things he brought in. Verse 15, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all of the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. So he now says, what did my dad do? My dad removed all that idolatry. He does the same thing. He, he, he literally tore down probably the same altars that he built 40 years before this. He did it. He turned not just with words, but he turned with actions. In verse 15, we see that he begins to reinstate the worship of God. In verse 16, he says, He also restored the altar of the Lord, and he offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, when I see that, I get, I get a little bit emotionally affected because he's giving sacrifices of peace offerings, and now he has peace with the Lord. And he offers offerings of thanksgiving. Man, how would you not be thankful if God had brought you back from an Assyrian prison in that way? And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord. And so I'm, I'm encouraged by this. And it, it shows that people can turn. Uh, I met a gentleman once. He was 65 when he got saved. He had heard about the gospel. He rejected his whole life. And then he got saved. And watching that guy at 65 on follow the Lord was an inspiration to many people around him. So you can, you can turn. It doesn't matter what age you are, you can turn. Now verse 17 talks about the response of the people, and I would just characterize it as halfway obedience. Halfway obedience. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. It's tempting to look at that and say it's a good thing. And it is. It's good that they're not sacrificing to all those other gods. But the word is very clear that there was only one place they were to sacrifice to the Lord. And that was in Jerusalem. So while they did obey and while they did turn to the Lord, they weren't completely turning back. Now Manasseh is going to die and his son Ammon is, or Ammon is going to come to the, to the throne and he is going to go right back to Manasseh's old ways. So I, I think again we see this message throughout the Old Testament where the children of Israel, no matter what time it is, there's this characteristic where they will go in. It's like in Canaan. They went in and they partially wiped out the Canaanites. They were commanded to totally wipe them out. But they partially did. And those ones that stayed became a source of continual temptation. And here's another example where 
hey, we need to turn back to the Lord, but they're not willing to turn 100% back to the Lord. Over time, I think this is going to allow the roots of sin to continue to grow up in their life. Verse, uh, 17, or verse 18 says, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And his prayer, how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and all the sites on which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house, and, his, and Ammon, or Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Now Ammon, in verse 22, says he did what was evil in the sight of his Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. So let's have some final thoughts here. Let's have some final thoughts here. Uh, first of all, notice that there's a consistent pattern here in the Old Testament. There's a consistent pattern, especially in Kings. When you see sin, and when you humble yourself, you do two things. One, you remove the sin from your life. And two, you renew your following of God. You, renew, you remove sin from your life and renew following the Lord. Essentially, it sounds a whole lot like the New Testament pattern of put off the old person and put on the new person in the Lord. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. But if you, today, if, as we're walking through this text, there's something in your life that God has brought up in your mind, some sin that you've been holding on to, something that you, you know you shouldn't. I know God wants me to do this, but I'm not going to. If that's coming up, here's the solution. Humility. Humble yourself, and then what does it look like next? Remove that from your life, but don't just remove it. Remove it and then turn and actively follow the Lord. Actively follow the Lord. Remove and renew. Um, the question you should ask yourself today is, as you look at your own life, where are there sins or patterns of sins or perhaps even roots of sinful loves in your life? Where are they? And what do you need to do about that? Today, we would say that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to humble ourselves, we need to turn from those, and we need to put on the new man. We need to walk in the power of the Spirit. Second application for us today is parents, don't give up teaching your children about the Lord. They may grow up and they may walk away, but you don't know what the Lord will do with that knowledge that they have. If you're a parent today and you have a child who's walked away, can be very, I'm sure that can be the most disheartening thing. I know some parents whose children have walked away. It's very difficult. But can you trust the Lord with your children? You can. God has not forsaken you. God knows where your child is. God knows what's going on with your child. And the Lord can use his word in that child's life. So never give up praying. Never give up loving them, being in their life. And then I think this is the last point. This is not on the slide. Let's think about this from an Israelite's perspective. If I am one of those who have been in exile in Babylon and I'm about to return to the land, 
and now the priest has written this down and I'm reading this, one of the biggest takeaways that I would get that I don't think we would catch today as New Testament Christians is that God was fully within his rights to wipe Manasseh off the face of the planet. He could have just evaporated him in judgment. But God had made a covenant to David. God had made a covenant to his people. And even when the king was wicked, when that king humbled himself, just like God said you should do in the covenant, God said, you humble yourself and I will take you back. And what did God do? He was faithful to his word. And so I think if I'm an Israelite, I look at this and I think, man, my God is a faithful God. I can trust him. Well, the God that they served, even though I'm not under the Old Testament covenant, is still faithful today. So you can serve the Lord. You can trust the Lord. He will be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for today, God. Thank you for being kind to us. Lord, we do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. Many of us, Father, have walked a life on a path of sin. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us today to humble ourselves in the areas that you are showing us in our hearts. Lord, if there are areas where we are walking like King Manasseh, maybe not to that extent, Father. Maybe we're not out and out rebelling as an open rejection, Father. But if there are areas, Lord, where we're just ignorant, where we're just ignoring you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict us today, even right now, and that we would humble ourselves and turn from that. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful that you are a gracious and a forgiving God. I pray, Lord, that as we think about you, we would not only think of you uh, with your commands to follow and your uh, judgments that can come on sin, but that we would remember that you are a loving God, a faithful God, and a forgiving God. We love you. We pray that you would bless the rest of our time today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.